What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the E4 Explosive Podcast. I'm Corey, and today you're going to see me interview Dave Riker. He was a King County Sheriff at one point, but before that, he was a homicide detective back in the day when your boy Gary Ridgway, a.k.a. the Green River Killer, was doing his thing mainly from 82 to 84 when he did his, his most killings. Um, that King County uh, area also had the glorious Ted Bundy to deal with as well, so... There's that. Dave actually was a detective on that case, among a couple other ones. And then he was the head uh, lead detective on the task force. This case, if you know anything about it, was notorious. It lasted forever. They didn't even catch him until uh, it was like early 2000s, late 90s. I mean, it went on for decades. But anyway, we talk about in great detail how that disrupted the community, the impact it had on the officers, and everything that was happening during that crazy time. Don't forget to like this video, hit that bell notification, so you get notified every single time I pop up on your screen. Also, subscribe to the channel, help me out. I'm trying to get them subs up. Uh, let's do this together, I really appreciate it. Um, share this video too, I mean, uh, you can check me out on all the links on all my social media links in the description as well. Um, and, audio check me out on the audio platforms itunes spotify all that stuff we're over there um but if you like these interviews let me know in the comments i'm having a lot of fun interviewing these fantastic people they're so interesting i know i've been on like a tiger king or like a murder type kick as of late so let me know if you're liking these videos uh and if you're not let me know i, I appreciate it i love constructive criticism but anyway enjoy this video of the ethos with the podcast with former homicide detective and King County Sheriff, Dave Reichert. Peace out. This episode of the E-Forks with the podcast is brought to you by Bravo Concealment. Bravo Concealment is known for some of the best high quality and concealable holsters on the market. Located in the great state of Texas, they offer free shipping and unlimited lifetime warranty on all of their products and a 30-day money-back guarantee if you don't like the product. I've been using Bravo Concealment for my gun holsters ever since I got into guns, and the quality is by far, bar none, the top notch in the entire industry that I've seen. And right now they're doing a buy one, get one free, plus free shipping, the 30-day money-back guarantee, and a lifetime warranty. On top of that, you, my friends, will get 10% off of any product, of any purchase on their website by using explicit10. Use the code explicit10 and you'll get 10% off your entire purchase from bravoconcealment.com. What's up everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the E4 Explicit Podcast. I'm Corey and today I have Dave Reichert who uh, was a homicide detective uh, back in the day with uh, King County Sheriff in Washington State uh, and then eventually became the sheriff of King County and uh, dealt with some notable characters uh, is what i'll say but we're going to talk about some of those things today and dave thanks so much for coming on and if you can give a little synopsis of of who you are that would be great yeah yeah you're welcome hey thanks for having me i've, I've done a number of these and i and uh feel um this this need this obligation to um to communicate to the people across the country through these podcasts now these these new platforms that are out this out there for people to to listen to so if I sort of feel like the more I do these, the more um, I'm able to help people understand what it's like to be a cop, what it was like to work uh, as uh, the lead investigator in the Green River serial murder case that took 19 years to solve. And maybe a little flavor was uh, what it was like to be 
uh, a member of the United States Congress for, for 14 years. So I, um, I grew up uh, in uh, East Renton. I'm the oldest of seven children. Uh, we, we grew up in a, in a pretty uh, poor family, struggling family, uh, ran away from home when I was a senior in high school because of domestic violence. Uh, sort of the protector of my little brothers and sisters as we were growing up. I was raised in a neighborhood where fighting, you know, was physically fighting was sort of the the norm. And uh, so I, I had to learn that that was not the way to solve problems. But uh, um, eventually, I think um, the, the way I grew up uh, and what I saw at home um, and my protective nature of my brothers and sisters and and, and other vulnerable kids in the neighborhood sort of led me to go into law enforcement. Uh, I, I played sports when I was in uh, all the way from uh, eight years old, played basketball, tackle football, and baseball. I played two years of junior college basketball, football, and um, got married after, uh, after two years of college. A few months later, joined the Air Force and um, and came back from active duty and uh, um, joined the sheriff's office in uh, in 1972 and worked as a patrol cop. Uh, had uh, the, you know some of the uh, the normal activities that you experience on patrol, but also some unusual um, calls where I uh, went to a domestic violence call, was stabbed, had my throat cut with a butcher knife. Um, you know, just, uh, and I've got a lot of patrol stories, but went off of patrol into uh, property crimes detectives. From there, I was asked to come and work in the homicide unit in early 1979. And um, uh, so I worked homicide and robbery until uh, I was assigned as the lead investigator in um, um August of 1982, as uh, the lead investigator of the Green River case in August of 1982. Um, worked Green River until they closed it down in early 1990, promoted to sergeant, went back to patrol, promoted to lieutenant as the SWAT commander, did that for a while, promoted to captain, went to precinct commander from there. And then from precinct commander, I was appointed as the sheriff wow. and then ran for election in 1997, was the first elected sheriff in King County in 30 years. Um, after I became the sheriff, I reopened the Green River case. We can talk about that later. Spent eight years in King County as the sheriff, went through WTO, was on the streets uh, of Seattle during uh, the World Trade Organization riots in Seattle. And, um, and then after that, uh, I ran for Congress and spent 14 years in Congress representing the district in Washington state, traveled all over the world, including the Middle East, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iraq, et cetera, Israel, Jordan, um, and other parts of the world. And, uh, and then retired uh, from there and went to work in Central America, working to help stop human trafficking. Um, left that job about three or four months ago. And now I'm, I'm back to work uh, helping um, uh, local law enforcement across the country uh, acquire a new technology called rapid DNA, hmm. which is a machine that can identify um, a rapid or can identify a DNA profile within 
uh, 90 minutes. And, and so that's kind of, uh, I'm, I've got three children, six grandchildren and three great grandchildren been married almost 51 years. Damn. And I'm a workout nut. I love every morning I'm up pumping iron or running or, or doing something. Yeah, hey, man, you look pretty swollen in pictures, man. I'm not going to lie. You're, <laughs> you're, you're pretty, uh, what are you, like 25 now? Yeah, right, 71. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. When I first saw you, I was like, uh, you, I don't know if you've ever gotten this before, but if there was a movie about your life for the Green River Killer, who do you think would play you? Um. I don't know, but I've been told I look like Leslie Nielsen. So uh, really, yeah, <laughs> he's I said, yeah, yeah, right, Leslie. I said I think Steve Carell. You, I, the older yeah. photos of you, the especially the one from the book, the one that I use for the That's thumbnail. Funny. Man, just good-looking guy, like hair. I don't know. I just I feel like he would kill it, and he's a great actor. But anyway, I always think of that. I he's tough enough. I was gonna say he's yeah he's he's got some range, but yeah I don't know if he's tough enough. Yeah, you're, Mel Gibson. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> That's a good one. Oh man. That's awesome, man. What a what a what a life. Um, well, that's funny. It's kind of you're talking about a DNA in 90 minutes. I mean, wouldn't that have been nice back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s? Was- uh, it absolutely would have been if we had if we had DNA, just DNA. Yeah. Uh, we could have solved that case uh, because we we recovered evidence. Um, from the first few victims in the, in the, the Green River in uh, August, um, uh, bodily fluid from two of the victims in the river. And then in 1987, we were able to get a swab from Gary Ridgeway. So um, we, we, were, we would have been able to save a lot of lives mm-hmm. if we had DNA back then. Of course, we, didn't, we couldn't test uh, DNA wasn't a science back then, and eventually it did. Science caught up with the evidence, and in 2001, we were able to make those comparisons and and arrest Ridgeway. Right. Yeah. That's that's um, that's fascinating to me. That whole just the whole concept of of law enforcement from from that that era. Because if you think about it, 72 is a is a prolific year because especially in, specifically in King County. I mean, you had Ted Bundy as well. Uh, and I, I don't know if you've seen it, but where, where I've, where I saw you, and I've known about you, but where I really saw you was in that Netflix doc that, that just came out, the catching killers when they interview you and a couple of your colleagues about the green river. But, uh, I've just saw a new documentary on A and E. Um, and it literally, I didn't even know this Gacy Bundy, Dahmer, Gary Ridgeway, the green river and, um, uh, BTK were all at one point, active in their murders i never knew that and this it's a fascinating documentary because it shows all of them and they go back and forth and right now they're in episode three talking about ridgeway and i mean i know one big part of, of something i want to talk to you about is like you know what it was like back then the toll on the community the toll is on law enforcement because now everybody that's fascinated with these cases all they ever hear or talk about is the, the killing. Oh, wow. He, he got convicted of 49 and he confessed to 71 Ridgeway did. Um, it's like, okay, you guys can Google that. Like, I don't want to really, I mean, we can talk about that a little bit, but I'm really curious and, and fascinated of like what it, it, it took the toll on you guys. I mean, you did such a fantastic uh, way of telling it in that documentary. I know you didn't get a whole lot of time, obviously it's an hour long series, but man, the, the, 
you know, Ted Bundy into Ridge Ridgeway. Obviously that was like, you know, kind of a little bit later on, but you know, the history of, of King County in general, I mean, have two of the most prolific serial killers in the history of the United States. I can't even imagine like what that has done to a community law enforcement and stuff like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. With, with, um, um, Bundy, I was uh, on patrol at the time, and my job back then was just to pass out the flyers of, a, wow. of a, the suspect description and, of course, the description of the Volkswagen. So I was going from business to business with these flyers. Bob Keppel was the lead investigator. He was in homicide unit. When I went to homicide in, in 1979, Bob Keppel was there, and he and I became good friends and partners, and eventually worked some very serious cases together as partners in that unit. But later during Green River, um, Bob Keppel and I actually flew to Florida and interviewed Ted Bundy for about two and a half days because he had written us a letter and said, hey, I, I, you know, I'm interested in, in talking to you and helping you understand the mind of a serial killer. Don't ask me how I can understand or why I understand the mind of a serial killer. But if you're interested, I'd be happy to talk uh, to you. So Bob Keppel and I flew to Stark Prison in Florida and spent some time with Ted Bundy, just talking about what he thought our uh, river man, as he, river man, as he called him, um, how he would act and what he would do and, and some of the things that might alert us to him as a possible, you know, this guy is a possible suspect. So, but the entire time during that conversation, Bob and I both knew that, that Bundy was really talking about himself. You know, the Green River Man will do this, the River Man will do that, the River Man will do this. And in actuality, it was, you know, Ted Bundy actually did this and Ted Bundy actually did, mm. did that. His, his, um, um, you know, part of my job in, in early 1982 was to was to look at the cases earlier because we felt that uh, Ridgeway started before July of 1982, mm -hmm. and so I had to kind of look at when I when I started to go backwards in time, I I butted up against the murders that Ted Bundy had committed, huh. and and so we were trying to figure out okay did Bundy because there were some unsolved obviously that Bundy committed and some unsolved that Ridgeway committed. And then you've got a group of murders in there that someone else committed mm -hmm. that were never solved. So it was very complicated. That was part of my, my job. You know, we, we just had a, a tremendous team uh, when we finally realized in, in 1982 um, that we had a serial killer. It, it happened quick. My first uh, prostitute murder investigation was in January of 82. Had no idea what was to come, obviously. Uh, we had a suspect in mind, uh, didn't have enough to, to charge him. And then in July of uh, 1982, Wendy Caulfield was found in the city of Kent jurisdiction in the river. Uh, so they were investigating uh, a prostitute murder. And, and so I called Kent, and Kent Detective and I were working together, uh, trying to see if there were connections between the two. Mm -hmm. So Leanne Wilcox was my case. Wendy Caulfield was Kent's case. We discovered they were cousins. And so we thought, okay, well, maybe there's a, you know, connection here. But then all of a sudden on August 12th, Debbie Bonner was found. And I got a call on August 15th that two more bodies were found by a rafter uh, going down the Green River. 
And then I found a third body on the riverbank as I was processing the, the scene where the two um, Opal Mills and Cynthia Hines were, I mean, uh, Chapman and Hines were found in the river. And then I found Opal Mills on the riverbank processing that scene on August 15th. On that day, of course, obviously August 15th, finding three bodies, finding one body on August 12th, and then going back to July 15th on Wendy Caulfield, we were absolutely sure we had a serial killer and we started a, a task force immediately on Sunday night. And then of course on Monday, we all met and began to plan how we were gonna investigate this series. Wow, did, did you, you said you had a suspect in mind, was it Ridgeway? No, at, at the time we, you know, Ridgeway was not a suspect in early 1982, but we, we developed lots of suspects. We had 40,000 tip sheets, 40,000 tip sheets. We had 10,000 holdings of evidence. And I couldn't tell you how many people we interviewed and, but there's, there's just, um, um, three and four inch binders full of information that takes up an entire room at the King County Sheriff's office. Of course, now all that's been uh, entered into, had to be manually typed into a computer. Um, your listeners should remember <laughs> that, that in 1982, uh, we had no computers. So everything was on hard copy. We, we used Rolodex files. So those are little files that you can turn little knobs on the sides, you know, to be descriptive for those who don't know what a Rolodex file was back in the day. Uh, had three by five note cards that you could slip in and out of that file. And we kept track of all of the names of, uh, of, the, of, the, of the girls who were working, of, uh, of the pimps who were putting them out there, of the Johns. We had a list of people who owned pickup trucks because that was our main suspect vehicle. We got a registration. We got registrations on every truck that was owned in the state of Washington. We, we had a list of people who um, had fishing licenses because of the Green River, obviously, uh, we made a list of people who had been arrested for patronizing prostitutes, who had been arrested for assaulting women, not just the girls on the street. But you can see, we were very thorough in, in creating a list and then looking at this list and trying to determine how many people appeared more than once, you know, and how right. many lists did they appear? And if they appeared on four out of five lists, or three out of five lists, they were priority A suspects. If they were lower, it'd be a B and then finally a C. And then we focused on those A priority suspects first. And Ridgeway became a suspect in 87. Wow. That's so smart. That's such a forward thinking way to, to do that, I think. Because that's another thing that's kind of interesting to me is you mentioned the the binders and the the, the you know 40,000 tips. How does one, I know you had a team, but how do, how do you do all that scope of work. It's, it's insane to me that, that, that that's well, how you guys had to do it, you know? Yeah, no, it's, it, and it, and it, it didn't seem overwhelming at the time mm. because I think that the, what was really weighing heavily on us was that each day that went by, there could be someone else killed. Right. And so, and it wasn't a, you know, we, we didn't show up and go to work for eight hours and go home. Um, <laughs> this was, this was like 24 seven. Right. And, uh, you know, I'd be out, out on the street and then working, working in the, in, in the office and then out interviewing people and then collecting bodies. And then some weeks we'd collect five, six bodies just in, just in one week and imagine, you know, processing five, six 
uh, outdoor crime scenes of bodies that were, you know, that were little girls who belonged to a family. And when you found those bodies, your, your, your goal was to find every microscopic piece of possible, possible evidence that you could find on hands and knees with magnifying glasses and, and, uh, and, and, and grass cutters and shears and chainsaws and tweezers and, uh, and, and then, uh, and then go to the family's house and say, uh, we've identified the remains that we found and they are your, they, they belong to your daughter and she's, she's dead. And, uh, that was another part of my job along with a couple of other detectives. Um, some of us were, were good at, um, you know, feeling that the emotion and the empathy and the, 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 the tragedy, uh, some, some couldn't take the emotion that was, uh, that was, that was directed at them, um, and, and didn't want any part of that. I felt obligated to do it. Um, uh, sometimes they were angry, uh, and rightly so, uh, and, you know, would beat on my chest and cry and, and some would hug and pass out and fall. I mean, just a range of emotions. Imagine losing your 16 year old, 15, 14 year old daughter. Um, and, uh, yeah, I became very close with the families. Uh, I was a pallbearer at, at one of the funerals, been to several of the funerals, um, friends of some of the family members. So, yeah, it's uh, and you take that home with you. Uh, you live with it. I live with it today. Every detective that worked that case that went to those body sites, you cannot close your eyes at night and not see. You know, I I I, I collected over over a hundred, well over a hundred uh, remains of of little girls, and. Um, yeah, you don't forget the smell. Uh, you don't forget the sight um, or the scene. Uh, you don't forget the pictures of the little girls before they were before they were murdered. And you and you don't forget um, the the emotion that the family showed. Um, they love their their child. There's still families today that keep the bedroom exactly the same way as it was when she was killed. Wow. And it, I can only imagine that that drove you to, you know, why you were so meticulous, why you were so, you know, forward thinking and so determined to find what happened to these, these young girls. Right. Yeah. I mean, the whole team, you know, there, there were some that came and stayed for five months, six months and said, you know, I'm, this is not going to be solved right away. And I, you know, I have, another career. And I, I don't think we're going to be solving it. Some said, and they, and they left, but the majority of people who came there, um, were, I mean, absolutely committed, dedicated. Mm -hmm. I believed all the time, a hundred percent, we will solve this case. Whenever the media asked me that question and you can go to YouTube and you can look, uh, you know, search my name and you'll find, 20 or 30 uh, documentaries and uh, every media interview I had, I said, we are going to catch this guy. 
period. Yeah. And I didn't know it was going to take so long, uh, but uh, we just had a great team of people, including the scientists that we had 2,500 volunteers that would come out and search the scenes uh, with us, uh, search and rescue people, search and rescue dogs, um, cadaver dogs, uh, trackers from the border patrol, the FBI, we used, uh, we used a, a plane that was not supposed to be known to the public. The secret service didn't officially told us it didn't exist. Um, but, uh, somehow we came up with some photographs back then of, uh, aerial shots of our, uh, crime scenes from, wow. you know, from space. <laughs> so, right. so, uh, which didn't help us, uh, at all, but we just, uh, it's just an example of, of the tools that we, you know, we were, we were really thinking outside the box as to how we could collect the evidence, how, what we could do to solve this case. We, we collected hairs and fibers from birds' nests that were nearby the body sites where they decomposed. Uh, I followed small uh, animal trails, burrowing animals into from under the body, and uh, in one case found a petrified fingertip that led to the identification of, of one of the girls. We found a, a, a kneecap at one scene that was the piece of the puzzle to, to identify her because the kneecap had been fractured right. and we happen to have medical records with the x-ray and the fracture line in the, in the kneecap matched the x-ray. Um, I collected one of the, the biggest pieces of evidence was a stump, a tree stump with, um, with a root ball still attached. And there was a struggle at this particular site. This turned out not to be related to Green River, but was another murder case of a young girl wow. uh, just south of here. But we took that because there were some fabric imprints in the mud and it was it, the, the, the weather conditions were too nasty for us to try to do any casting out there. So uh, we wrapped that thing in a blanket and I called a backhoe out in a, in a, in a flatbed truck and we hauled it, hauled it down to the Seattle uh, King County um, <laughs> evidence room and let it dry out. And then we, we went through the process that we need needed to do to, um, to process that stump. And the property room wasn't happy with me. <laughs> <laughs> that's fascinating, man. That's, that, that's incredible that you guys, like I said before, like had the, the foresight to kind of even think outside the box because you had to, do you think that like the experiences uh, with like the Ted Bundy case and like kind of the mishaps that happened with that. I mean, back then it was like, no one could put, you know, if, if someone was killed in this County or this town or this other town, cops weren't talking. So the fact that you were talking to other departments and cops and different areas, do you think that like, maybe you kind of, not you particularly, but like the, the culture changed a little bit of like how to do these kind of things because of big cases like that? Well, we, we still had that problem. Um, so there was some evidence that was found in, in, in the small, small police departments uh, around King County that we didn't learn of until, until later because that police department wasn't a part of the task force. And, and again, back then, remember, you, you didn't have, nobody was communicating by computer. Right. You, you, there was, you know, the email and texts and cell phones and all that came at a much later time. I think we got our first computer in 1986 and, it, and, and the computer took up the entire size of it. Uh, we take up the entire size of a, of a classroom. Right. So um, 
uh, yeah, the communication really was by telephone wow. and, and by sending out faxes and bulletins. Um, so we communicated as best we could, but there were the really communication systems that we have today, of course, were not in place. And so things did get, they did get missed here and there, but, um, I, I think that as time has gone on, police departments have gotten better at sharing information. Mm-hmm. Uh, back then, uh, I, I remember working with some detectives in Portland and they had come across, um, a, uh, and I'm just going to call them what they were, a pimp that I had been looking for for a while. Uh, I knew it. I called them, asked for the information. They wouldn't give it to me. Um, part of the Part of the reason was that they wanted to be the ones to solve the case. Um, and number two is that they, they didn't, if it was a part of the case, they really didn't want to have Portland associated with the serial murder case because Portland PD then would be drawn into this political, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we were, we were um, the, the media was not kind to us. There were cartoons in the paper that was, you know, called us the Green River Task Force instead of the Task Force. Right. And they really didn't know what was going on. And we couldn't tell them everything that was going on because you, you're in an active investigation and there's certain things that you can't share. Uh, that's a whole nother story that mm-hmm. I could go into about fact. I'll just share one real quick one with you. Early on in the investigation, we had set up a surveillance on Frager Road, which is down in the Kent Valley, which it's only two ways in and we set up two unmarked cars in the, in the bushes because we believed through talking to the FBI profilers that the killer would come back to the scene, which we know Ridgeway did. Um, I have a bunch of holsters from Bravo and one of them is the inside the waistband holster. So this goes inside the waistband if you want to conceal carry. Also, swap it out here, outside the waistband. So this outside the waistband is actually like hella thin and you can see kind of like how how close to the body it can get. You could take this on the range. Um, you, you can probably conceal this and comfortably do it with you know a hoodie over top or whatever. If you want to open carry, um, it's up to you. They also send out mag pouches, right? So you can throw in an extra mag, you're going to the range, you don't have to unload and reload every single time. You got a little... Uh, hollow point moment they come in handy if you're on the range like i said or if you can still carry and you're one of those people that are gotta have a lot of mags or whatever um you know whatever whatever your cup of tea is they also send you these really cool pamphlets they go into great details in these brochures of how to wear things properly safety mechanisms and all the features that all of these holsters have as well so they really focus on educating their customers which when it comes to guns safety and education are Number one, they don't have any left-handed holsters except for the Glock 19. I'm a lefty, but the right-handed holsters are so dope and they're so comfortable and concealable that I don't really give a shit. Just learn how to shoot with my right hand. And right now they're doing a buy one, get one free, plus free shipping, the 30-day money-back guarantee, and a lifetime warranty. On top of that, you, my friends, will get 10% off of any product, of any purchase, on their website by using explicit 10. Use the code explicit 10 and you'll get 10% off your entire purchase from bravoconcealment.com. After we talked to him, we learned. 
Uh, we had these two cars in the bushes waiting for, uh, you know, the killer to come back. Um, but before we really had set up for more than a couple of days, the news media had made a couple of flyovers the scene just to continue their reporting. They happened to spot these two cars from the air and then, and then put those two cars uh, on their news program as possible detective cars staking out this area. So of course, then after that, we just, that we had to, we had to forego that idea. Right. Caught them on. Yep. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. So not going to come back after the news media. Of so course. They, they were a hindrance to us for the most part, but we did use them every now and then to help us get public service announcements out. Uh, for example, we used the, um, you know, uh, you may have heard in, in other cases after this, uh, someone out there knows something, mm -hmm. kind of see, see something, say something. Say something. Yeah. Someone else there knows something. And so I was one of those. Detective Brooks is one of those. And, and, the, and the commander of the task force, um, Captain Adamson, was the three of us did these public service announcements and it just generated more tips. We also did a manhunt live show with Patrick Duffy. It was a two-hour nationwide show actually into Canada and it generated all kinds of, we had a phone bank set up, people calling in. And at the end, the guy calls in and says, I'm the Green River Killer because I issued a challenge to the Green River Killer at the end of the program. They had me look right into the camera and say, well, we will catch you. Yeah. So you should turn yourself in because we are not giving up. It was a little more eloquent speech than that, but you get the idea. Yeah. Uh, right at the end of the show, the guy calls in and says, I'm the killer. I want to talk to Reichert. So um, everybody got excited. The news media had already been let into the room. I get to the phone. This guy's confessing to the crimes on the telephone. And I'm, I'm, it's got to be the first time in history where a detective is interviewing a possible serial murder suspect by telephone, surrounded by TV cameras and radio microphones, shoved um, in my face for 45 minutes or so. Um, you know, at some point during the conversation, I pretty much realized that this was not the guy. He was full of baloney. Yep. But, but uh, you, you know, you can't just disregard that stuff. So. Right. Yeah. That's that's another thing is I, Zodiac. That happened to Zodiac too. Someone called in. They had a broadcast and they interviewed a psychiatrist, and it was like a, it, was, it wasn't the Zodiac killer, but. Uh, yeah. It was something similar like that, but that's, that's another thing is like, you can't leave no stone unturned and you might, you probably got, you got, you guys probably got so many crazy tips that you had to kind of see through, which is distracting yeah. you and taking time from other things, but you have to do it, you know? Yeah. And in fact, we, you know, we, uh, I mean, we followed one guy, uh, well, investigated one suspect who, who was driving through Seattle, picked up a couple of, of young girls off the street in Seattle, found and gagged them, put them in the back of the van. They were able to somehow get the back of the van open. And as they drove through Seattle, the suspect drove through Seattle with these two in the back. And now the doors are open. They happened to drive by a Seattle police off, motorcycle officer who saw this, followed him. The guy crashes the car. They chase him. They catch him. The two girls are working girls mm -hmm. and um we so i mean you're thinking we got the guy right it's right yeah it's lit right so but we spent months on him and we're able to eliminate him so there there's 
there was more than one example like that, but just to give your listeners and viewers, uh, you know, just the idea of that's just one guy right. who was doing something, something similar to what Ridgeway was doing and picking up these prostitutes. People ask me, why was this so hard to solve? Well, um, think, think of it. You're, you're a John, you're a trick, you know, wh what do you do? You get in a car and in Ridgeway's case, he gets in his pickup truck. He, he drives up to a sidewalk. Um, he rolls down the window or pops the door open. There's a, an exchange there that can last a few seconds. The, the agreement is made, the amount of money and the act is agreed to. The girl gets in the car, disappears into the night. Yep. That's and why it's so people, hard. <laughs> that's why it's so hard. And the people yeah. on the street who are your possible witnesses are also kind of in this criminal underworld mm -hmm. um, and in this, you know, in this uh, prostitution, drugs and alcohol and whatever else is happening in that world uh, on the street there. They don't want to talk to the cops. Mm -hmm. So you have to build trust and that takes a while. Um, also remember that the girls who disappeared, a lot of them are girls that were on the street had, I mean, they could have five, six different names, mm -hmm. change their birth dates, five, six, seven, eight different birth dates, change their addresses, change their hair color, change their appearance in, in different ways, change the license plate numbers on the, on the pimps cars, change cars, change motel rooms. The pimps change their names, change their appearances. Uh, one day they're going by star the next time they're gold, golden girl or you know mm -hmm. or, or whatever and if you find the body four years later and then you go back and, and then that takes you six months to identify her then you go back okay i've got the name i know who she is now who are her friends and now i know who her friends and family are now i got to go back and build it okay where were her friends where was she was she with her friends and if I figure out that she's on a was on a street corner and they last saw her get into a car, is anybody on that street corner with her? Were they were they high? Mm -hmm. uh, would they or are they not high? Were they able to were they cognizant enough to be give me a description of the suspect and the suspect vehicle? Right. In most cases, no. Especially years so, later. <laughs> years later and months later, sometimes one one of the, the young girls who was missing in 82 wasn't found until six years later. Wow. <clears throat> yeah and they're not going to remember those uh types of things especially like you said they could be high they could be intoxicated they, they don't want to talk to it's kind of like those like i talked to some uh detectives uh the guy who investigated tupac and biggie's murder and it's like that no one's going to talk and tell them oh yeah it's just this crip gang member that shot this person like they have to go find that out like you said build the trust and oh my god man that the fact that you're just you're basically telling the scope of what you guys were up against that i mean any murder investigation is difficult let alone one like this on this scope also in the river too i mean the amount of evidence that was probably lost immediately was i can imagine frustrating yeah i mean it, but it's amazing how much so the opal mills and cynthia hines we were able to get uh, spermatozoa of course that was from inside their bodies uh, and they were wow. only in the river a few days, but Wendy Caulfield was in the river for probably a week or so. If I remember correctly, I'd have to go back and look for sure. But, um, just if, I mean, if she was in only in the water a day or two or three, um, you might think that the ligature around her neck, 
would have been um, totally devoid of, mm -hmm. of any evidence. Um, that river washed over her, washed over her, its continual flow, right, of water over that ligature around her neck. Well, later we take that ligature and we're able to find, uh, there's a new science too, not only DNA, but a new science in looking at paint evidence. And so on that ligature around Wendy Caulfield's neck, they found microscopic, the lab did. That's why the scientists in this are so important. The lab found microscopic paint spheres. So Ridgway was a truck. He's a truck painter. painter. Yeah. At, at Kenworth Trucking. So he's painting this truck and the, and the, and the, the microscopic paint spheres land on his clothing. He transfers those to Wendy Caulfield's ligature. And of course, when we did a search warrant in 1987 of Ridgeway, we took his coveralls out of his locker um, at Kenworth. We had him chew on a gauze and put that saliva sample in a test tube. Mm -hmm. um, and we searched his house and, and, and didn't find much else. Those are the two things that, that we, you know, the, the, the coveralls with the paint and the, the, the saliva sample. But um, two other pieces of evidence were very key. The one young lady, Debbie Estes, who was found six years later, um, had a piece of article of clothing uh, in the grave with her decomposing for six years. That decomposing cloth was examined by the scientists. They found microscopic spheres, paint spheres, on those decomposing threads. Oh and God. they were able to match her body to the paint on Ridgeway's coveralls. The third piece was a blouse that was found about a mile downriver from the Cynthia Hines Open Mills Marsha Chapman site. And that blouse belonged to Cynthia Hines. And some were questioning, should we take it or not? It's a mile down the river. I said, let's take it. Let's keep it. We kept it. We tested it. It had microscopic paint spheres on it. So we made three cases on paint evidence and we made three cases on DNA. And one case was um, associated with the three, uh, with DNA because she was found in the same, uh, they were found in this, Opal Mills was found in the same place, of course, as Cynthia Hines, Marcia Chapman. And then later Carol Christensen was found east of Maple Valley and she had um, some, some, uh, DNA evidence wow. on hers. So we charged Ridgeway with seven mm -hmm. uh, with seven murders. That you for sure knew he did. We knew it was the DNA. The defense attorneys at first said, well, hey, look, you know, before the paint, we only charged him with four right at first. And then I started a, I started a, um, when I was the sheriff, again, I'll go back to that first. I opened, reopened this case because they shut it down in 1990. The, the county council didn't want to give the sheriff's office any more money. They didn't think we were going to solve it. Everybody had said it's, it's, you know, it's, it's over. And um, when I came, became sheriff, I reopened this case and I said to the detectives, we're going to do a, an evidence team and we're going to look at every item of evidence and decide what to do first. I called members of the old task force back together. We met at precinct three in Maple Valley, just South of Seattle. And they all agreed the most important evidence, obviously, to look at would be any evidence where now 
we could get because we knew about DNA then in 1997. So now let's just see if we can find something that'll give us DNA. And uh, we first took that DNA evidence to a, a lab on the East Coast in 1999. And they said, your, your evidence is too fragile. It's, it's too minute. We're, and the science hadn't progressed to the point where they could test such fragile samples. So um, they said, come back when the science has developed further. And mm -hmm. March of 2001, we were contacted by our state lab and they said, bring us the evidence. We can do this now. So Tom Jensen, mm -hmm. uh, who um, started the, the, uh, on the task force in 1984 and uh, continued working on the case uh, with Jim Doyen after they busted up. I, in 1990, I was promoted and put back on patrol. Jim Doyen and Tom Jensen went to major crimes. And Tom's job was to continue to manage the case, track and log all of those tips that were still coming in. And he submitted the evidence then, that evidence that was the DNA evidence in early um, 2001, I think it was March. Um, and uh, finally in September, we get a response back from the lab. That's how long it used to take back then. Wow. In September, Tom and Detective Brooks, who's now a chief, came to my office and and the way that they presented it was, hey, we need to talk to you. OK, came down, sat down and um, Tom uh, um, laid out three sheets of paper uh, with uh, DNA profiles from three victims. And he says these these victims, the profiles, we have DNA profiles and they all match. It's the same person. And I said, Tom, are you trying to tell me we caught the guy? And Tom pulls out an envelope and he, he goes to hand it to me and to open. And I said, I don't even I don't even need to open that. I I know who it is. It's Ridgeway. And I opened the envelope and it's a mugshot of Ridgeway, the only mugshot we had. And the, the mugshot was in early 1982 and the first quarter of 1982. I don't recall the month where Ridgeway was arrested the one and only time for patronizing a prostitute until we identified him and we put him under surveillance. So after this meeting with, with Faye and Tom, I, I create this evidence team. I had the meeting with the past detectives and we put Ridgeway under surveillance. And um, um, actually the evidence team was created prior to, prior to this meeting, but um, we put him under surveillance and he hit on a, um, on one of our, uh, decoys, our female decoys on the street. And that's when we said, you know what, we, we need to arrest him because if he escapes our surveillance and hurts or kills someone, we definitely didn't want that to happen. Of course. So we arrested him. That is that's, that's what you said in the doc. That's how it went down in the documentary to Tom is the other guy in there, right? Yeah. Yep. Tom is, Tom was our detail guy and he was sort of our computer before we got computers. He was just one of those kind of yeah. guys. He didn't like the scenes at all, but he was our guru there and we just could have, you know, couldn't have done it with, without the hard work of Tom. And for that matter, any of the other detectives, they all played a key role. Um, and, you know, and eventually later uh, we put a new task force together 
once we arrested Ridgeway, we had another task force together because our job now was just starting. We arrested them, but now we had to make sure that we could find all the 10,000 items of evidence because mm -hmm. the defense was going to be asking for discovery. We God. needed to find those. And if you can't find one, you know, they can punch a hole in your case. Mm -hmm. uh, and we, we needed to uh, make sure that he was going to be convicted. So uh, we were focused, focused on that. Once we provided the, uh, we charged him with four. Well, I'll tell you how the arrest went down real quick. Yeah, yeah. So, um, of course, I wanted to be there. Of course. <laughs> but now I'm the sheriff, and this is the 12th largest sheriff's office in the country. So my job's not a detective anymore. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm in the command post, and I'm listening to the chatter on the radio. We had undercover detectives at Kenworth in the plant, in the parking lot. Uh, all around the parking lot. We had uniform officers on, uh, on, on posts uh, around Kenworth trucking. When he walked out, when Ridgeway walked out at the end of the day, our detectives rolled up on him in an SUV and said, hey, uh, you're Ridgeway, right? He says, yes, I'm Ridgeway. Ridgeway, you're under arrest for the murder of these four women. He said, okay, and handed him his lunch bucket and got, they cuffed him and drove off in the van. What really struck, I mean, he had no emotion and that's just, you know, that's a, that's a typical serial killer mm -hmm. um, profile, you know, the kind of the emotionless, um, no empathy, uh, you know, no remorse kind of, kind of person. And um, what struck me about that arrest though, what hit me when I was listening to it was when the detective came on the radio and said one in custody 10-4 so i just thought back to my uh, career on patrol and how many times i had said one in custody 10-4 mm -hmm. so one in custody everything's okay and it it was here was a 19-year effort um and uh, somewhere between 60 and 70 people killed uh, we finally arrest this guy and it was just the anticlimactic one in custody, 10-4. So in a way, it was like every other arrest, but not. Right. <laughs> right? Yeah, that, yeah, I get it. Yeah. It's kind of yeah. like a, it's it's this huge thing. And then it's just like 10-4. All right, we got him. It's it. it was okay. We got him. So, was, <laughs> so they brought him to the regional justice center. We, we uh, you know, tried to interview him for a little bit. He was talking a little bit. Uh, his attorney showed up and I sort of waited for a while that the attorney talked to him and then and then uh, i just said you know what if that lawyer wants to talk to him any further he can talk to him in jail so i had the detectives um knock on the door and uh, the attorney came up and i said hey this the, the interview's over he, he's going to jail mm -hmm. he got up he got cuffed and he walked past me and and i couldn't resist but i you know because i had to say something i hadn't something. had my I hadn't had my pound of flesh really yeah. um, with him. And, and, and all I could say as he passed by was a gotcha asshole. And uh, he just kind of stared at me, didn't say a word and walked past Jesus. me off to jail. He went emotionless like that. That's and and you, and you go back to talking about how difficult it was. And you also have to think about the, the, the girls and the women and the line of work that they were doing. These are people that, you know, are transient that they don't have a family directly that they could you know that next to kin that you could notify to an extent but it's like 
you know, forgot, you know, almost some of these people. So it's kind of hard to, to, to find like those, that was his MO was, was working girls and prostitutes. Correct. Yeah. He picked, he picked, um, that, um, profile because they're, they're, they're runaways. Um, they were easy prey. They were vulnerable. Uh, their job was to get in his car. He didn't mm -hmm. have to kidnap anyone. He just, all he had to do was make a deal and they got in his car or he, and, and he, and, and there were some that he took to his home, which was right off the strip. He killed him in his house. Uh, that we learned, uh, we learned later, but you know, they, the, the piece that really is emotional for me is that, um, and today we've come a long way, I think, in recognizing that in the 70s, we treated these girls and in the 80s, into the 80s, really, uh, in the early 90s, these little girls were treated as criminals mm -hmm. uh, and they, they shouldn't have been. So they were victimized at home. And I would say 95% of them, not all of them were prostitutes. There's some on the on that victim list that were not. They grew up in good homes. They grew up, went, they were in high school. They got into the wrong crowd. They ended up in his, in his grasp and their life was snuffed out. Mm -hmm. But most of them were, were, grew up in a home that was, that was dysfunctional with, now, every family is dysfunctional to some degree, but right. there's violence taking place, either directed at them, uh, directed at another member of the family, um, sexual abuse, something at home is causing them to leave, run away, and live on the street. Right. When they get to the street, these pimps back then victimized them again. And today, there's so much human trafficking today, and it's hidden because it's all on, a lot of it's through the internet. A lot mm -hmm. of it's now... You don't see so many on the street working as uh, street walkers, as they used to call them, or street hookers, as they used to call them. But these women and young girls now who are in the, the, the human trafficking world are working out of homes in, in neighborhoods like yours and mine. Mm -hmm. And nobody knows that. And they're ranging all of that through the, their, their Internet through the computer system, through text, through some social medium. So in that day, though, they, they ended up on the street and they were scooped up by these pimps and victimized again. So got them on drugs, got them on alcohol and turned them out on the street. And then they were victimized a third time by the, the criminal justice system when they were arrested rather than say, okay, we, we got to get these girls off the street, get them some help and get them back home, get them in school. Right. We arrested them for prostitution. We arrested them for drug use, we, whatever it was. And so, uh, you know, today we really need to focus. Those girls are out there. And you said something about, you know, I, I think you almost said invisible, but you didn't quite use the word invisible, but that's the other thing that struck me back in those days from Seattle to Tacoma, that's, that's about a 40 minute drive mm -hmm. on Pacific Highway South, maybe a little longer in traffic. But on that Pacific Highway South route, you would see on a Friday and a Saturday night, over a hundred little girls and young women working on the street corners. And then downtown Seattle, you'd see more women working down in the Pike Street area, down in the, the farmer's market area, and then further north up on Aurora Avenue. 
Uh, so there were hundreds of these girls out every Friday and Saturday night, but all week, day and night, all hours, they'd be out there. People driving to and from, you know, from their homes to work or their, from their homes to the store and back from point A to point B, saw these girls, but didn't see them. Mm -hmm. They were out there, but they were invisible. Right. Nobody did anything. Wow. And, uh, and, and, uh, some of them lost their lives. Uh, and, you know, that's the, we really need to pay attention to our children these days, pay attention to family, care for your kids and care for your sons and your daughters now, because they're all being taken advantage of out there on the streets. Human trafficking is even more pro prolific today uh, than it was back in the eighties, harder to identify, harder to investigate. And your child can get sucked into this world through this computer. Yep. No, you're exactly right. And we'll talk about human trafficking uh, for sure. Cause that's something I actually had an episode with uh, the state Maryland state police officer, uh, Joe Dugan, who runs that whole uh, project really um, of capturing these, these online, mainly online predators and stuff like that. And these sex offenders and child exploitation and, and, and trafficking of these children, specifically in the yeah. state of Maryland, but it is a huge thing and i definitely want to talk about it for sure I'll, I'll finish up real quick with um uh the i just can you talk a little bit about the toll that mm -hmm. this case took on the community you guys as police officers because hearing you talk about and literally listing the names first and last names of some of these women is like i mean that was so long ago and you remember it like it was yesterday i can only imagine <laughs> So, you know, can you talk about like the toll on the community? You know, it, it I don't know. I just, I, I'm very curious of, of that. Yeah. Um, well, in the beginning, you know, when we started to investigate it, uh, the community was um, not really paying attention to start out with. Hmm. Uh, these were little girls who were working in the world of prostitution. You know, it wasn't my little girl. Right. Um, but as the case started to build, people and more and more girls were being killed. People started to worry that, well, this guy might start killing people who are walking home from high school, from junior high school. My daughter could be a victim. Um, the, the women, there was a group called the Women of the Night, um, Take Back the Night um, initiative was, the, was their initiative, Take Back the Night. And they started protesting and, and uh, raising awareness, which was was good. But, um, you know, they, they blamed the task force for for, you know, what was going on and right. and, uh, and help paint the picture that we were in, inept and and not able to, you know, to to uh, solve the, the case. Solving the case. Right. Um, in fact, they were the push and the newspapers along with them to get the FBI involved. The FBI lasted six months in the investigation, gave up and quit and, left and went home. Jesus. I was in the mid, mid 80s. So um, the, the community, um, you know, put a lot of, started to put a lot of pressure on us to solve this case. And, um, and then there was a lot of fear again, as I said, because now it expanded out to, this could be my little girl not just girls who were involved in the human trafficking world. Um, 
And then when the case was finally closed, I think there were some who were, I know the parents of the victims were very um, upset. <laughs> that's, that's politely put mm -hmm. um, and angry. And I, I think a lot of the community was too. And when that happened, I think there were a lot of people who said, well, now this case will never be solved. Right. And um, the detectives, I, I remember the day that I left on, there were three detectives left me Tom Jensen and Jim Doyen and uh, Jim Doyen has since passed, passed away. But uh, when I left on that day, um, I knew I was going to patrol, but I was going to be patrolling in the areas where um, the girls were missing from. Mm -hmm. I spent my graveyard shifts as a patrol sergeant were spent of course doing my job, but I had time to patrol those areas where, I had recovered bodies where I knew victims were missing from. So on patrol, I, I never forgot this case. Right. And I never stopped, I never stopped working on it. <laughs> yeah. Right. I went back to the same that that area. And whether I worked day shift swings or or graveyard uh, shifts, I was looking for the killer. Wow. And and uh, and Tom was busy at the computer in the major crimes unit. Uh, and if there, a, a lead did come up and people still were calling me at the precinct, Hey, I oh, think wow. this guy's it. got that, you know, I think this girl is working for some, and then I would call Tom and he'd make a tip sheet. If there was something good then Jim and Tom would go out and investigate it. Right. Uh, but otherwise they would just enter the information in the machine, uh, back then the, ta the, the computer finally. Um, but, uh, the case never left and the, if you think about it, you go to bed at night during that entire time, hoping to solve the case, hoping to find something. You didn't want another body to be found. Mm -hmm. You were afraid that someone else would be killed. Um, you, you, that was your constant concern. But on one hand, you wanted another body found. Hopefully it was older, right? It wasn't like overnight. New, yeah where you could find evidence to catch the guy. Right. And, and then you'd constantly stay up at night thinking, what, what am I missing? What am I doing wrong? I was, so I, I was totally obsessed with this case mm -hmm. during the time that I was, you know, assigned to the task force and to the point where they thought about transferring me out because it was unhealthy. Right. Yeah. They, they thought, but I said, look, I've been to every crime scene. You need me. To be here yeah you know so much about it you're so valuable so it's it so they they kept me there uh but when i went to family events i was there physically but mentally emotionally i was not i i was sat in a corner and uh, thought about this stuff i went on vacation for a week my wife and i went off with some uh relatives and i was gone for three days and i worried the entire time that a body was going to be found on the third day Phone. I find a body. I get a phone call. Um, they said, we'll take care of it. Don't worry. You know, you don't need to fly back. I got on a plane and flew back. I couldn't help myself. Wow. I, I could not stay. Uh, I had to be here. Wow. Uh, and and, and I'll, I'll tell you, I'm not the only one that felt that way. Uh, that's how dedicated and committed. So, you know, pause for a moment. Mm -hmm. The cops that are being bashed today, uh, it's just, it makes me sick to my stomach because I know 99.9% .9 of those men and women are out there 
care. Right. They want to help. They want to make a difference. They want to save lives. They want to counsel people. They want to protect people. They want to hug people. Um, they want to give them groceries. We did that on the task force. You go to a house, tell them that their daughter's died, and you see their cupboards are bare. What did we do? We went to a grocery store, we bought bags of groceries, left it on the front porch. Wow. Uh, you go to one, went, went to one house, got little boy's bicycle was stolen right before Christmas. And so uh, I went home and myself and a couple other detectives, we bought new wheels for this little bike, painted it, decaled it up, put new handlebars, uh, new wheels on it, drove it over there on graveyard shift, dropped the bicycle off on the front porch and left. Nobody, the family doesn't know who put it there. Wow. But we do. Wow. That's the thing that cops do though. And and people need to wake up and realize that um, I, I'm not the only one that, that, that uh, you know, um, that served in that way. And like I say, I, I really believe everybody that I worked with served in that way. They served with the heart of the servant. That's what I like to call it. They know that they're serving and they have the heart of a servant. That's a gift. Not everybody will raise their hand and say, put me in that uniform. Let somebody slash my, my throat with a butcher knife and get end up with 45 stitches and nearly die. Um, not everybody says, yeah, put me in there and let somebody point a gun at me or shoot at me right. uh, or beat the shit out of me, which has happened. Um, so you can see this, uh, you know, it, it touches... Uh, a very uh, sensitive spot for me because uh, the way that cops are being treated today is absolutely unbelievable and, and so ridiculous. And look at the rise in crime right now. And that just follows you, right? So, yeah, I was wrapped up in this case. I was obsessed with this case. My, my wife, uh, you know, uh, put up with, with that sort of a, a personality for many, many years until I, when this case was solved, that burden was lifted. And when we made that, when I, I gave that press conference on the day that we arrested Ridgeway, um, people stopped in their tracks. I still get people today that say, I remember you on TV that day making that, that press announcement about you arrested the Green River Killer, when actually I said we arrested Ridgeway, but everybody knew what I was saying. Right. And eventually, you know, we, he, is, he became the Green River Killer because we caught him. He pled to 49. We closed 51 cases. Wow. He killed somewhere between 60 and 70 women. Yep. But it was like for this community, it was like a heavy, heavy, dark cloud and burden that had been hanging over the Northwest for, for many, many, many years. And, and when that announcement was, was made, I have people telling me they actually hugged their mother or hugged their you know, spouse. They were jumping up and down. That's yeah. amazing. <laughs> that, 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 I mean, yes, it took 19 years, but it's like, that's uh, the fact that the, you know, you, I don't know, man, that's just, damn, it, it takes me, there's a, a detective from BTK said that, um, they didn't realize they had a serial killer and then Wichita where, where that happened, Wichita woke up. Right. And it's King County is obviously not Wichita. It's much bigger. Um, but it's incredible to hear that like the community is like, had such a, 
you know, in the beginning, kind of like they were annoyed and they were pissed off because it wasn't getting solved. We already talked about how difficult it was to, to solve. I mean, it took so long for a reason. And the fact that like everyone was kind of like, they could breathe a sigh of relief almost of like, okay, this guy is off the streets. And it's kind of interesting that it's full circle that you were the one that came back, opened up, reopened the case and eventually was able to, to solve the, the, the crime. And, you know, I, I, would, I also want to talk about the cop thing too, because I a hundred percent agree with you with that, you know, with that stuff, but damn, man, that gives me chills the whole time you were talking. I had chills about everything you said. That's, f- I'm sorry. I cussed a little bit. That yeah, is no, cr- it's, it's crazy. It's, it's heavy. I always believe that God has a plan. Jesus. And, um, you know, that entire time I was praying, why can't we solve this? You know, um, mm. but I don't, I don't really know. Uh, <laughs> you, you, I went to homicide and robbery, um, at, uh, I was 28, wow. 28 years old, soon to be 29. And, um, and then three years later, I find myself, uh, just walking by the desk and the sergeant had taken a phone call from the comm center saying they, they found this body in the green river. Um, you know, and so off I went and little did I know that it was going to be, I was going to be the whoa you know, face for green river. And, and then the case is closed. And then, um, uh, I came back, I, I was promoted rather quickly after that from sergeant to lieutenant to captain to precinct commander. So from 1990, March, when they closed the case, um, I became the sheriff in 97, March of 97. So that's when I reopened, reopened, uh, the, the case. And, um, I'll, t- I'll tell you, I, when I was a captain, I applied for a job as the police chief of one police chief of one of our largest contract cities shoreline there were five candidates so we all interviewed with the new city council and i got a phone call a week later and and the person said you know you interviewed well we really liked you however we picked somebody that kind of is fits more with our city so i guess one of my first um, disappointing um rejections right (laughs) Uh, or a lot of tough times, don't get me wrong, but that one kind of hit me hard because I, I thought I was, you know, shoe in and felt mm-hmm. pretty confident, but I was told I wasn't the guy. But just a few months later, maybe 10 months went by and there's an opening for a precinct commander. So I applied for that. Five other people or four other people applied. We all interviewed and I was selected to be the precinct commander for the North Precinct. And so I, I was promoted to that um, position in early of March of 96. And the person who got the captain's job that I wanted was now working for me. Oh, wow. <laughs> How that work out? Yeah. <laughs> so, so 10 months later, the, in 1996, the voters decided I'm, uh, they want to have an elected sheriff. So for the first time in 30 years, they want to go back to an elected sheriff rather than appointed. Mm-hmm. Our appointed sheriff says, I don't want to run for election. So um, I'm out of here. He left and took another police chief's job. So now they're looking for a sheriff. And I've been a precinct commander for maybe 
10 months and I get a phone call from one of our chiefs who says, hey, we, we hear that a county executive wants to appoint somebody and we want to run your name up the flagpole. And, and I said, for, he goes, for sheriff. And I said, you got to be, I thought it was a joke. Right. And so I started laughing. And it was Chief Larry Mays that had called me. And uh, so if he watches your podcast, he's out there today. So this is all his, <laughs> his uh, mastermind. But he calls the executive, tells the executive about me. I get a phone call. The executive would like to interview me on, on Monday morning. So this was on a, on a Friday. I got threatened on Saturday by one of the, one of the people who were going to, he was a state representative. He called and said, if you run, I'm going to bury you. I have oh the God. money. I have the team and I'm going to rip your career apart and I will, I'll bury you in the campaign. And so if I had any sort of, um, you know, indecision in my mind as to whether or not I was going to run that guy just, solidified in my mind that right. I was going to go for this job. Yep, so yep, yep. on Monday, I went in and I interviewed with uh, the county executive and a couple of his staff. On Tuesday, I got a phone call from um, somebody in the sheriff's office who's from uh, Sufoy, who mm -hmm. was the, the sheriff's executive assistant, who later turns out to be my executive assistant. He calls and says, the executive wants to meet you uh, tonight, Tuesday night for dinner. So wow. I said, okay, I was at work. So I met the executive. I sit down. He says, I'd like to offer you the job of sheriff. I said, <laughs> okay. And, and on Wednesday morning, I raised my right hand and I was the sheriff of King County. What? And then, uh, yeah. And that's, that's how it happened. And then, um, I forget how long it took me. It might have only been a few weeks, but I reopened the case and, and started the evidence team and and called the the past detectives together wow. and um so we, we began that effort right away but yeah you're right i mean i think back to my career um you know i could have easily died when the guy slipped my throat because he just missed my jugular vein right. uh, there were times where i had i mean one case I had a shotgun stuck in my belly and uh and it was a standoff between you know, me and this other guy. And, uh, he finally talked him out of shooting me and he jacked his three rounds out of his uh, shotgun and laid it, laid it on the bed. Um, I could have easily, you know, I, I lost my best friend. Uh, he was shot and killed in 1982, just before the Green River case started. Wow. I lost another good friend, uh, an academy mate in 1984, who was stabbed with a, with a, and a World War II sword. He was stabbed and killed uh, on duty. Uh, you could have got that uh, job. Yeah, I've, very, I've been very blessed. Yeah, and uh, to be in this position, and then uh, after eight years of being the sheriff, thirty-three years with the sheriff's office, and um, I went to Congress for fourteen years, and I worked on the foster care system, which ties closely in with kids who are in trouble, who are leaving their homes, who need a, need a loving, caring home to keep them off the, the street, did a lot of work with domestic violence and did a lot of work with and in human trafficking during my years in Congress. Right. Yeah. Well, let's, let's segue into that. If you want the human trafficking thing, because um, it's like you said earlier, it's a, it's an important thing. It's happening more now than ever. At, when, when I talked to that guy, I mentioned Joe Dugan, 
I was like, you know, how many, it can't be, you know, with, with to catch a predator when that came out, like now that it's more in the spotlight, it can't be happening more. He's like, no, it actually almost doubles every year. The amount of people that are being affected by this and being trafficked and, and taken and, 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 and assaulted and stuff like that. And just the exploited really. Um, and I'll tell you one little quick little story. I moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, and I lived kind of close near route 85 and uh, I lived up from DC. I lived in New York. I never really noticed any kind of trafficking signs ever. Um, and let me tell you, when I was there, I never, I saw so many signs of trafficking that it was like almost plain as day. I mean, people, but to almost getting like abducted into a van. Um, it was like everywhere in the news every night. It was like, Oh, this, this, this kid or this young person was abducted. And it's like, so close to the highway where it's like, bam, I could pick them up and I'm gone. And then they're out of the, they're out of Charlotte or they're out of that area. They're down, they go South or they go North. Um, Cause 95 was like right there, but I never thought of it like that until I like literally saw it. And I was like kind of in it with the community where it was like, it was a huge deal in that small in, in Charlotte when I lived there, but I just never thought of it like that. I thought of it like, you know, like the movie taken, that's what I think of human trafficking of like overseas. It doesn't happen here. Right. But I was completely wrong. So if you want to kind of touch on the traffic. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's always been here. There are always those people that want to take advantage mm -hmm. of the weaker people in our society. And those that are out there who are, are young and, and have, have left home or who are, are in, areas where they shouldn't be and are vulnerable um, are, are, uh, are, are people who are open to be victimized. And the, the thing that act, exacts, exacerbates it more today is, uh, <clears throat> not to be political about this, this is a fact, the open borders uh, in our southern border is, has, has really increased the human trafficking flow, and um, and the cartels are involved in that. And the cartels don't just exist in Central and South America; they they exist here in the United States and in other countries, and they're working together in concert with each other. I know of cases where, because uh, I, I did work in in the Central America for two and a half years after Congress on human trafficking, and um, parents. Some parents are hurting for money so bad down there that they would rent their children to people to bring them up to the United States to use as their own child to get them across the border. Wow. And then the child is taken back again and used again. Uh, sometimes the children are kidnapped and brought up here and eventually they're, they're put into to human trafficking or they're killed on the way. They're used and abused, sexually abused, raped all the way up from Guatemala to, to, uh, you know, to Texas. And their 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 throats are slits, and they're they're left in the desert to to die. Jesus uh, Christ! I know, but uh, you know, some are kidnapped. Mm -hmm. uh, I talked to an eleven year old uh, girl in Guatemala, who was nursing her um, uh, little baby, eleven year old uh, little girl who was raped and has her own baby. I mean, I, how? It's just it's just tragic. Um, you know what's happening. And then the second thing that's having a huge impact on human trafficking today is goes back to what we were talking about before. And that is just the entire attitude toward crime 
and law enforcement. So if there is this crime that people call, you know, victimless crime, um, like drug use or um, which there is no such thing, right? right? If you're using drugs somewhere along the line, there's going to be a victim. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe it's just you are the victim because now you're addicted to drugs and you're, and you're killing yourself. Right. Um, and others around you are affected. Your entire family is affected. Maybe you draw a brother or a sister into that world. Mm -hmm. They overdose and, and die. So there is no such thing in my mind as a victimless crime. Prostitution is another example that you know, people want to paint as well. It's their choice. Well, no, a lot of time it's not their choice. Right. So the attitude toward crime uh, has to change. And the attitude toward how we solve this problem of human trafficking has to change. It's not all about the criminal justice system. It definitely is when it comes to the Johns and the tricks that are using and abusing and raping teenagers right. and young women in the human trafficking world. But the victims, the, the, the young girls and, and young boys in today's world too, are being used and abused and killed, mm -hmm. assaulted, raped and killed. And those kids are the ones we need to start to pay attention to and look at uh, how we can help those families that are struggling uh, to raise, you know, raise their children. Uh, you know, it used to be when when fam when you had a family that was abusing their children at home, the police could go in and take that abused child, put them in to foster care, and and foster care them, and finally adopt, have them adopted into a loving, caring family. And then the so number one, I think it's not in, in any particular order, but in my mind, I have to list these out. That that whole open borders thing has just increased the problem exponentially. And then secondly, the way that we view crime today and define crime is second. And then third, it's the way that we have that, that we view cops and law enforcement and the way that we tie their hands and 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 uh, prevent them from enforcing right. the law. So I think all the to get all that together and and uh, Finally, uh, the last point I would make on this, and probably the most critical, should be number one, is, is again, the focus on the family, right. the, the loving, caring family, so that young people don't get engaged in drugs and alcohol and, and, and prostitution and, uh, and, and that family working with the school district, that family working with social agencies, that family working with the police and supporting the police and supporting teachers and doing the job of raising law-abiding, healthy um, men and women. Because, um, you know, I travel a lot around the world, as I mentioned before, and every place that I've gone, um, the parents all want the same thing for their child. Mm -hmm. They want a safe home, safe, loving home and want to provide their kids with food, education and a future. Right. right. And I also think that faith plays an important role in all of this, no matter what your faith is out there. I'm not trying to, to define your faith for you. My faith happens to be, um, I happen to be a Christian. And uh, so I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins and I have and know my sins because we all sin. Um, I know I'm forgiven and, uh, and I know where I'm going, uh, once this life here ends. Right. And I think that has, you know, that heart of a servant piece, 
uh, fits a lot of different religions. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Right. So people should grab onto that. I'm here to serve respect and treat people with respect um, and fairness and equality. That that's my job. Right. Yeah. And honestly, like when it comes to the cop thing, I feel, I feel like now more than ever, it's, it's, it's easy to kind of, you know, blame an entire community of people, cops for a couple uh, other people's actions. Right. And, you know, American people in general tend to do that with a lot of people where like you might see a certain type of demographic of a person or a type of, you know, uh, I don't know, educa- educated person or not educated person, you put that one person in a clump of everyone else. And it's, I agree with you. It's very frustrating because, you know, a lot of people don't understand how, I don't even know how difficult it is to be a cop. I mean, one day you got to be a psychiatrist. The next day you have to deescalate a situation. The next day you have to be able to take out a guy with a knife trying to cut your throat. The next day you're, you know, there's so many things that, you know, they have to do on a daily basis. And I, I personally agree. Don't, I don't think they get enough credit. And I, I think that they are, are looked at in the wrong light, especially now, since everyone's got a cell phone and, you know, you always catch the tail end of something. You don't yeah. really get the whole story. And then you're prosecuted by social media and cancel culture right away. Yes. There are a couple bad exam- bad apples out there, but that's with anything. Um, yeah. f- for the most part, they all are trying to protect and serve they took that oath for a reason it's very serious to them and you're you're a prime example of that and everything that you've gone through and your dedication to those families um i remember we talked on the phone i remember back in the day even even in my back in the day it's up you know you do a ride along with a cop it was cool you respected the cop you was they're part of the community it wasn't like this like oh you know fuck the police type situation um i agree with you i think that it needs to get back to that um, in some way, shape or form. I know that's easier said than done for sure. Yeah. But- I think it's, I think the pendulum is going to swing people, like I say, want safe communities. They want right. their kids. We're seeing some activity in California now where they're starting to recognize that maybe defunding the police was a bad idea. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that there aren't bad cops too. Right. You know, for your listeners out there, um, I've, I've testified against bad cops in court. And, uh, when I was a police officer, uh, so, um, you know, we, good cops don't want to work with bad cops, right. we, we want out, but you hire, you hire, um, cops from the human race mm-hmm. and you can do, you can have all the filters in place and the processes in place where you ha- want to hire the top quality candidate, the most qualified person that you can find to be a police officer in your community. But there's going to be a few that will fall through the cracks that shouldn't have been hired. Right. And you can find that, like, as you said, you know, in, at, at uh, in the teacher's profession and the doctor's profession and, Any of them. and you know, working at, at, at Boeing or at Walmart or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Seriously. Uh, yeah. People everywhere. Yep. And I just think that, you know, people work with the police to, to hire the right people, get the community involved with hiring the right people, training the cops, training. get the community called involved with training and setting curriculum so that the community takes ownership now in their law enforcement agency. Hey, I was on the board. I helped hire this, this guy or gal, right? Mm-hmm. I was on the training commission. I helped set the curriculum for our community to train these police officers. And now that we've hired the right people, now that we've trained the right people, mm-hmm. we need to support the right people these people that we hired 
to do the job that we hired to do, hired them to do. And yes, it's to enforce the law, but as you said, they they just do so much more than that. So much, so and, much. You know, it's it's the um, the last thing I'll say is that the on on, the, on this topic is mm -hmm. that um, we need to elect people to our city councils and county councils and state legislative bodies to support law enforcement. Because if you don't support law enforcement, you will have you're going to have chaos. You'll have vigilantes. You'll have more guns right. uh, and more people using guns to protect their own property and their own families. And and what you want are pe people in those elected positions that will say, you know what, we're going to hold the police departments and sheriff's offices accountable. Mm -hmm. We're going to provide them with the tools that they need the money they need to train their cops, the money they need to buy new technology. For example, there's a new machine called rapid DNA. It's about the size of a microwave. It, it costs about a hundred, 150 grand. What I don't, you know, somewhere in there. Now today, if you know, in the, in the old days, uh, my day, <laughs> you could, you, I would go to a murder scene and I would start to develop a, you know, a list of suspects the husband, the brother, the uncle, the neighbor, mm -hmm. whatever, the cousin. And I'd start to investigate and build a probable cause case um, on a couple of those people. And if I got probable cause on, on a couple, I, that gives me enough to do a search warrant, gives me enough to arrest them. Okay. And, uh, but, but if I, if I'm, if I do that to two people, one of those uh, or both could be innocent. Right. So I've just searched an innocent person's home. And I've also taken away their freedom by putting the cuffs on them and taking them to jail and they haven't done a damn thing. Mm -hmm. Well, in today's world, I could go to a homicide scene. And if I say, and this is going to happen in every case, but if I see some bodily fluid in this crime scene and I go, you know what, I, that's, that's the suspects. Right. I'll take a swab, put it in this machine. 90 minutes later, I'll get a DNA profile. That gives me the, that gives me my suspect right there. Right, yeah. Now that doesn't mean, He's the guy, but he's the main suspect. I got a DNA. I got blood. Let's say it's blood. I swab it. I get his profile. I got the name. Now I build my case. I get fingerprints. I get witness statements. I get uh, time logs of when he was at work and when he was, you know, wow. when he was available to be. So I get all of that stuff. And then when I finally go to meet him, I get a search warrant to take another DNA swab from him. And I put that in the machine and in 90 minutes, I'll know if that matches. That's the guy that matches the blood on the swab. God, that saves so much so, time. <laughs> and the other thing it saves is that that conflict that might occur between the cop and the innocent person at right. that search. Because if you come into my house and you're telling me I just committed a crime and I know I didn't, I'm going to be pissed. Yeah, that's going to be a problem. And then imagine if you're a person of color that just then that just feeds the the narrative of well yep cops profiling yep yeah i'm i'm a i'm a person of color and the cops are taking me to jail uh because later then you find out that it was a white guy yeah that, that happens a lot i see that a lot of exonerated people that yeah. just you know and it's funny uh well not funny but uh i don't know if you know the navy seal jocko uh wilnick i think his last name is um, anyway, he goes on Joe Rogan a lot, but he, when they were talking about defunding the police, he brought up a good point. Um, and he said, 
you know, if you do defund, he's like, you should absolutely actually do the opposite. You should give more funding for more training um, to find those. Like you're exactly what you're saying, the high level people, the high quality candidates, because if you give the, the cops a bad name and they have a bad rap, no one wants to be a cop. Who the hell do you think are going to become the cops? Right, right. Well, it's the same with politicians today too. <laughs> if, if you just if you just rant, if you just want to rant and rave about a certain politician, you know what? The good people aren't going to run anymore. That's exactly right. Attack the, the crap out of them. Um, you know, it's the politics is a nasty game. Like I say, I ran seven times in in a in a Democrat state as uh, one of the few Republicans that was able to win here in Washington state. And wow. I got hammered every day. I got hammered every day. Um, but I stayed because I wanted to make a difference and I wanted to help. Finally, uh, I mean, I had made a promise to myself. I wasn't going to be there when I was 70 years old. So I, I left at, uh, I think I was 68. That's amazing. So, yeah. But well, I, but I spent 14 years there. That's what I was going to ask is what do you, you know, I, I know you got a, a, a prior engagement too after this but yep. um i just want one last question and it kind of can tie into your politics is like what do you want to accomplish at the end of the day if you haven't already well for me it's for every for every day uh, what i want to do is I, I just want to make a difference you know in, in somebody's life and just be a positive influence and um you know i i did a uh, that that netflix uh, uh, documentary that you were talking about episode one mm -hmm. is the one that that uh, detective brooks and detective jensen and i were on um, i got an email from a cop in hungary wow. who saw that episode and she said uh said some some nice things about uh, us and and me and how we worked the case and cared about the people and compassionate etc but what struck me was the final note there's a question at the end of the email. <clears throat> can you can you please answer me, respond to me? I, I'm using a translator to send you this. No, I don't speak English. I'm using a translator. Right. But I would like to know uh, what what advice would you could you give me to be the best police officer I could be in the community I serve in my country? Wow. Now, <laughs> so that so then people go well. Now, what advice would you because there's all kinds of you know <laughs> there's not just one <laughs> keep your training up uh you know train with your firearm right. uh, uh, take vacation when you need it that kind of thing but i i'll tell you the most important thing and i would tell any cop this um is to to remember that you again i said this already in in this interview that you are a servant you're there to serve the people now it doesn't mean you're a social worker it doesn't mean that you have to stop enforcing the law, but you understand that you serve the people with the heart of a servant. I'm here to help you. And the heart of a servant to me means that I get up every morning and I think about what does the other person need or want? Put their needs before my needs. And that's what cops do. They put their life mm -hmm. before, you know, they put their life out there for yeah, you. For sure. Yeah. Um, I'll just give you another real quick example. I had, uh, I was the sergeant of a plainclothes team um, out in the White Center Burien area, just south of Seattle. It's a tough neighborhood and we were serving a drug search warrant. So we, we all had assignments. 
Uh, we announced ourselves, we kick in the door. Mine was to go into the bathroom, which was off to the right. We had the floor plan. The other officers went through the rest of the apartment. I got to the bathroom. I opened the door. There's a, an addict sitting on the toilet. He's got the band around his arm. He's got the needle shoved up his vein. And he's got the glazed uh, eye, you know, eyes. And, and I'm yelling at him to get down on his knees, put his hands uh, behind his head. And uh, he's just staring at me. And finally, he stands up. And he puts his hands up above his head. Now, he's not doing what I asked him to do. He just got his hands up. And all of a sudden, his hand disappears behind a half wall. Now, is that when you shoot the guy? Right. You know? Like, what but do you do? he comes out, what do you do? And I'm just asking your viewers that. What do you do? And so you have to make that split-second decision. Get down on your, on your knees, put your hands behind your head, and he stands up, puts his hand, and he's got the needle in his arm. His eyes are glazed over. I don't know what this guy's going to do. Mm -hmm. And he, he does come out with a gun in his hand. Now, as soon as I see that gun come out, is that when you shoot him? Right. A lot of cops would. A lot of cops would, and they'd be justified in doing that. Mm -hmm. But I, I always look for the person who gives it that one split second longer. And I said, drop the gun, drop the gun, drop the gun. And I've got my gun on him. And he looks at me, kind of gives me a little bit of a smile, kind of swerves around a little bit, and leans back, and he drops the gun in the toilet. Wow. And then, then I jumped him, cuffed him, and and off he went to jail. But But... You know, I hope your listeners put themselves in that position. I know it's hard. It's a hard thing to do. But when do you pull that trigger? And if, if I had pulled the trigger when his hand went behind the wall and all that was back there was a hairbrush. Right. Or he came out with a hairbrush and I shot him because I thought it was a gun. Um, I'd be out of a job. I'd be right. going to jail. Right. right. In today's world. Yeah, it's it's a it's in a lot of situations it's a lose lose for the cops because yeah. God forbid he did have the gun and he pointed at you and shot you but you waited too long. There's yeah. I feel like there's never really a right time or answer, right. you know, with any of those things, which is funny. well, and that's the thing. So now you have guys, you know, cops out, out there who who uh, won't take any action because they don't want to be in that situation where, mm -hmm. you know. Now I'm going to put myself, I have to, I have to, I am going to die. Right. right. If, if they want me to take it to this nth degree, um, then I'm not going to put myself in a situation where I have to make that decision because you actually want me to get shot first before I take action. Exactly. Right. And I'm not doing that. No. And I would sign up for. No. Yeah. No, I didn't. I, I mean, I signed up to take risks and knew that my life would be in danger. But I'm not there to, you know, to put myself be stupid. Not blatantly do it. Yeah, right. exactly. No, I, I, I totally hear that. That's and that's great advice. I think to anybody listening that is in law enforcement, and it, not even just to have a different perspective of someone who, who walks in the has walked in those shoes for decades, has seen everything. Like we've talked about in this whole interview. Um, I mean, Dave, you're 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 a great guy. Like I, I'm I'm yeah. at all of you actually. Um, I didn't think this was gonna go is is the way it did honestly i thought we were gonna talk about the green river killer and this and that but man you really make some really good points and i hope a lot of people can think about all the stuff that you've been saying because i think it now is as is, is a good a time as any to to kind of 
really understand what goes through, you know, all the stuff that the cops do and stuff like that. So thank you so much. Well, man. Hey man, you know, thank you for having me on. Uh, and I, and I say to your listeners out there, the time is now for us to start to change things and turn things around and be positive and respect each other. Let's, let's work together and do that. And it's, it's, it's easy to find the bad in people, right? It's a lot harder to find the good. Let's find the good and focus on that. God bless you guys. Thank Thanks. you, man. That's another episode for the E4 Explosive Podcast. We'll see you next time. And right now they're doing a buy one, get one free, plus free shipping, the 30-day money-back guarantee, and a lifetime warranty. On top of that, you, my friends, will get 10% off of any product, of any purchase on their website by using Explicit10. Use the code Explicit10, and you'll get 10% off your entire purchase from bravoconcealment.com.